biggest hitting products and, and growth have come from um, customer interviews, listening to customers. The other mantra you hear a lot is, you know, solve your own problems, right? And I think that's definitely true and a good and reliable way to build a good company. Multiple things. I mean, being being customer centric and building a good product in, in consumer is definitely key. Although I would argue that increasingly that's not enough. I mean, to be fair, I was living in a shack with six other volunteers um, and the shower never worked and we'd get electrocuted by the shower because the wiring was bad. My guest today is Sho, who is the co-founder and CEO of PAVE. PAVE is on a mission to help thousands across the UK improve their credit score. On the podcast, Sho tells me where his passion comes from driving his mission. We discuss the importance of talking to your customers and understanding their needs. Sho tells me how he's grown the business to over half a million monthly subscription customers. We talk about the explosive growth TikTok had on PAVE. And Sho explains the importance of having a great team willing to take risk. I'm your host, Mark McDonough, and this is the UKTM Podcast. Our sponsors of the show, Uncapped, believe it's crazy that for e-commerce businesses to fund growth through marketing, infantry, or hiring, they have to sell equity to VCs, especially when they know they'll make that money back right away. Uncapped solved that problem. Already helping over 500 businesses worldwide, they offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales, no dilution or loss of control. Founders simply apply online, receive a decision within 24 hours and make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue. Head to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN to find out more. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10. That's UKTN10. Now let's get into the show. Show. Thank you for coming on on the show. Show, yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought it'd be a really good idea to start with a conversation because I always love hearing why people started their own company, and I'd love to know why you decided to to start Pave. Yeah, great question, and thanks for so much for the opportunity. Uh, really great to be on the show. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I'll go way back actually because uh, I think it's um, as as for many founders, I'm sure that the reason why you start a business is quite integral. Uh, to you and your personal story too, but I'll keep it brief. Um, so yeah, I'm originally from Japan. Uh, that's where I grew up. Um, I'm half British, so I kind of jumped between the two countries, but I really spent most of my uh, first half of my life there. Um, I think the the, the sort of first, um, uh, I guess, cause that I got interested in uh, was as a kid, I was maybe five or six, um, learning about uh, homelessness over there um, in Kyoto, where I grew up. And uh, that experienced um kind of sparked this sense of uh, wanting to uh, focus on uh, issues in my career that have a very strong social purpose to them. Um, and so when I was of an age where I could actually kind of contribute back to society, um, I went to Brazil uh, to do microfinance work. And um, that was where my journey really, as I think an entrepreneur began, I, uh, I worked in an NGO doing microfinance, um, kind of after-school daycare programs for kids. It was a variety of things. But most importantly, um, I worked for a, uh, an entrepreneur. And uh, this was a, a lady who had come over from Germany to Brazil to found an NGO uh, that I worked with. And I just remember being uh, completely in awe of the impact that this one person, of course, with the help of many others, uh, but nonetheless, this one person had instigated. Um, and so... 
I took that experience um, and particularly the work I did in microfinance and, and thought, uh, I want to work on something that includes people into a broader financial system. Um, and so uh, I had a brief stint following that in uh, university and professional services, uh, but then ended up uh, joining an incubator called Entrepreneur First, where I met my co-founder. And oh, okay. that's when, yeah, and that's when uh, we started uh, Pave. We were actually called Portify before, but we rebranded about uh, half half a year ago now, or well, maybe not less so at the start of 2022. Um, so that's how it all began. And I'm happy to get into the, the details of what we do if of interest. But yeah, that's the uh, origin story. So, so th- this is pretty much your, your first startup that you set up yourself. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we definitely have uh, gone through a few iterations as many uh, early stage companies do. But for me, this was my first, I guess, you know, the, the, the yeah, of my own starting. Yes, absolutely. That's right. Interesting that you worked with um, a good female entrepreneur in the past, actually, because I find with a lot of startups that you have people that have come straight out of either college or have left a, a, a job that they didn't like or they saw a, an opportunity in the market and they took it. What What do you think was the bits of advice or the, the learnings that you took from that entrepreneur that you worked with? Because I, I don't know how closely now you worked with this person when I'm taking it, you work close enough with them because um, there's always things that you pick up on because you would have seen it firsthand what, what it's like to build a company and, and go through the whole startup stage. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I mean, she she was one of many uh, actually female mentors that I had. I don't know why, but typically my mentors have been female. Um, the I, I mean, I think the, the, the most, you know, the, the most impressive thing that I remember was, uh, I mean, like she didn't speak a lang- uh, uh, any Portuguese at all uh, when she got into São Paulo city in the, in the 70s. And um, now it's a lot better, but São Paulo used to be a pretty rough place back then. Um, and she went straight into a slum uh, without speaking a word of the language and started an NGO helping some of the most like challenged families, right? And yeah, I mean, since that time, the situation, of course, has improved. And by this was 2008 when I used to live there. I mean, to be fair, I was living in a shack with six other volunteers um, and the shower never worked and we'd get electrocuted by the shower because the wiring was bad. And we had to, I had to hand, hand wash my clothes for like a year, which was a super fun experience actually. But um, anyway, so the situation was better, but still not great by then. But I just was, I always remember thinking like, wow, the determination and courage it takes against all the odds, right? To, to yeah. do something like that and just like, you know, put a flag up and say, I'm going to do this, um, was the number one lesson that I, I, I took from her. I, I, yeah, I think it's just that it's like, you know, if you told that you were, if you said that to your parents, that you were going to go do that, they would definitely say no. Right. And I think, uh, I just remember looking at her and being like, damn, that's, that's so impressive. You, you have so much courage. So I'd say courage is a big part of it. Yeah. I, I suppose then you're, you're going into it, um, with your eyes open knowing what to expect that little bit more than most you know because as i said like you 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 worked i won't necessarily call it a startup but you worked with a a good entrepreneur and you saw the the struggles and the challenges that that she was going through and you still decided to go and set up your own your own business like most most don't see that um and they will kind of jump into something um that maybe they didn't know how difficult it was going to be and this kind of goes back to what you you touched on the amount that that fail 
you know, I think it's something like nine and 10 fail in the first three years of business. Um, so it's, it's a big stop going in, knowing the risk that you're taking is another thing. Oh, it's a, it's a great point. And, uh, look, I, I think definitely though, like, you know, you, you, you might go in knowing a little bit having worked with a founder, but be, I do think I would say being a founder is just a completely, it is a different experience, right? Like this is personal and work blends entirely, you know, any kind of up and down in the company is directly uh, correlated to your stress. It's actually super funny. I recently got a Fitbit and you can like see your heart rate, right? And and this kind of brought this point to home, but I was in a really important meeting the other day and I posted it on our Slack channel, uh, but you could see my heart rate go from like a resting rate of 60 BPM to something like 170 before this meeting. I mean, I'm not really kidding. Like it was that high. And so anyway, just an anecdote to say like, that's how involved it gets. I don't think you get that experience. Um, maybe if you're a founding team, you can definitely uh, get a sense of what it's like. But yeah, being a founder is a different beast. So I would just caveat and say, I don't think um, I had any good sense of what it is. What I did have, though, was obviously the you know strong determination, which I can't explain where it comes from, but strong determination to, to want to spend, and I think about this a lot, but like spend the time that I have on this earth doing something that I really care about. And actually, yeah. I worked in professional services, as mentioned, prior to, to doing this. And that was more a way for me to pay off debt and save money for the business. But um, when I was doing that, I could tell that my motivation as a person was very closely linked with whether or not I cared about what I was doing. And it was also kind of another clue to me that like, you kind of are doomed, right? <laughs> it's it, yeah. To put it, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, you, you, you have to do it. Like, otherwise, you know, I know it sounds negative, but the reality is like that for me. It's like if I, yeah, I do it because um, I care, but it's also because I can't really imagine doing anything else. You're dead right, though, because I know from even my own personal experience, anything that I've done in the past that was any way successful was something that I actually cared about, something that I enjoyed doing. And from the, like, I, I've interviewed a lot of founders now at this stage, and I do see a pattern. And the pattern normally comes across as, like, the the drive and the and the, the ambition and the love behind what they're doing. So leading to that then, where where did the idea for, for PAVE come from? Uh, and, yeah. and what was the, the thinking about? Because I know, obviously, you're, you're helping to build, you know, credit scores and, I take I take it it's in the UK that you're you're looking after. I'm not too sure if you you look after further or, right. or not. Um, but the credit ratings I'm I'm taking it are fairly are fairly dire for for a lot of people in the UK. So so where did the the passion and the love come from to to solve that problem? Yeah, um, great question. And um, I think it started first of all. Well, yeah, working in Brazil, I, I they had this amazing state-sponsored program that was a condi conditional cash transfer um, program set up by the president back then. And uh, it was a way to like include people into the financial system by offering them cash to get their kids to like register and then go to school and kind of formalize what was otherwise an invisible segment uh, of the population. And so I had that experience. I wrote my like dissertation on it um, and then... Uh, when we, uh, my co-founder Chris and I had started iterating in, in, uh, in entrepreneur first entrepreneur first is, you know, a pre idea incubator. So we didn't have a specific concrete thing that we went in with. Um, but, uh, after looking at market trends at the time, we got thinking that actually, you know, there was a big boom in, um, kind of self-employed people 
that we saw with the rise of brands like Deliveroo and Uber. And we had this inkling at the time that, okay, interesting, if you're self-employed, you're probably going to get excluded from a lot of um, financial systems that we take, uh, products and systems that we take for granted. And so Chris and I started interviewing just loads of different, anyone that was self-employed that we could find, not just limited to, you know, gig, gig economy workers. And so we did like loads of interviews, went as far as uh, writing for Deliveroo for a while because none of the writers would want to chat with us because they didn't trust us. So we wanted to get the, uh, we wanted to get that green windbreaker to try and uh, kind of make ourselves look legit. Um, and so, yeah, I remember wearing that, walking around Shoreditch, like chatting to these uh, poor riders. I, uh, you know, forgive me if anyone's listening. Um, you but, you uh, weren't actually working for them at the time. You actually just got, got a loan of a, of a, a jacket. So as you could talk to these guys is it no 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 i actually went out riding so i delivered oh, in mayfair okay. yeah 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 it was super fun actually it's actually pretty satisfying um to to you know be like on the move the whole time and yeah so you know i actually rode for them for a bit uh you know didn't 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 do a ton of it because i had to spend most of it interviewing but getting back to that point so once we started talking to them and weirdly and coincidentally, uh, just one of those moments in life, one of the writers that I spoke to was Brazilian. Um, and I was just thinking like, hmm, super interesting. Like, obviously, it's a tenuous connection that I'm making in my head that's more kind of romantic than anything. But um, you're someone who is telling me that you find it difficult to access financial products. And there's a link. And this kind of ties into what I've worked on before in my career. Super interesting. Let's start iterating see if we can solve a problem for you and your personas, so to speak. Um, and that was the instigation of the product around um, credit building. Because when you're self-employed or when you have erratic income or when you're just young and don't have a credit record, either because yeah, you're young or you just migrated to a new country, what you'll find is that you don't have credit accounts or um, other evidence or records for um, lenders to, to make decisions off of your credit worthiness. Um, and so... Uh, we built a subscription fee powered app that partners with all the major credit reference agencies and uses their data, but also open banking data to try and help you put forward the best case um, to those uh, partners that, you know, you are credit worthy individual. And that was the genesis. Now, it, it took several iterations, to be clear, to get there. Like we started doing tax first and then other things, but um, eventually we landed on uh, the, the credit building angle. Um, and I think that journey, you know, from the first conversation to getting the credit building product live took about a year, a year and a half. It was, it was, you know, a series of, uh, of MVPs and, and whatnot, but I think that's fairly standard. It's interesting that you, you, you went to that length to, uh, to, you know, really kind of figure out what was going on and what your potential customers are, are, are going through. And it always blows my mind how, some of the entrepreneurs that I end up talking to don't talk to their customers enough, you know, even to this day where you mm. did it at the beginning. Um, I take, do, do you still do it throughout, you know, because I, I, I want to get into the figures of the amount of people that have like signed up to PAVE and how you built uh, the, the number there. But be interesting to, to hear, do you still reach out to people? Do you still do market research surveys and, and listen to their feedback? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's key. I mean, especially in in consumer uh where you know 
I think you can often build products and be really arm's length from your customers. Um, while in B2B, if your key account exec is your, sorry, key account is your customer, then you're talking to them all the time, right? So yeah. I think you have to stretch particularly uh, in, in, a, in a consumer context to do that. Now, it took me a while to develop that muscle, right? Like, don't don't get me wrong, like getting, getting a delivery jacket and like talking to these people was like super cringeworthy, right? As an entrepreneur, even it was like, oh, but uh, you get used to it. Um, we still do loads of interviews. And actually, I would say all of our kind of, biggest hitting products and, and growth have come from um, customer interviews, listening to customers, um, you know, trying to just really understand where their needs are. And so, uh, I mean, I, I think last year we, we do hundreds um, of interviews every year. Uh, I, I try to sit on as many as I can, um, but I, you know, we'll, we'll probably have done about a quarter of those uh, either leading or listening in. Um, so yeah, it's a very, it's key to, 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 our kind of proposition development and, and uh, development cycle. Do, do you include your your community in the decision making? Um, like for argument's sake, uh, if, if you were looking to change something within the platform or within the service, do you ask them, we're thinking of A or we're thinking of B, which, which would you prefer to, to kind of get the feedback on it? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the kind of well-known brands that have done that really well, like Monzo, we definitely took inspiration from that, tried to tried to see if we could copy that. What we found, and again, this goes back to like knowing your customer really well, like our customers are, are super duper busy people. They're often, you know, juggling one, two, three jobs, um, have kids, uh, depending on the, the persona, um, yeah. and they just don't have time. And so, and like finance to them, they often have complex relationships with, right? Because if gotcha. you're here with us to build credit, maybe you've been treated badly by a credit card company or you don't trust a credit provider. And frankly, looking at your account balance, this was a really interesting insight. Some of our customers are like, don't show me my account balance because I don't want to look at it, right? So complex okay. relationships to money, busy. Um, do you have time or do you just want us to do the work for you? Uh, do you have time to engage or do you just want us to like, you know, set it up and make it as smooth as possible. I think our customers are more towards that. Um, and so while we do have a set of like super high engaged customers that have been really loyal to us and we're very grateful for them, who uh, we have on WhatsApp and kind of like run new UI, UX designs by, uh, I would say in our particular case, the whole like community sourced feedback thing didn't quite work. Um, we did, we couldn't... Um, get people to repeatedly engage and i think that just boils down to the nature of you know who they are what they're what they're trying to do and um we found different ways to engage which is much more like in-depth uh interviews some compensation to make sure that we're you know these are busy people and, yeah. and they and they deserve to be paid for the the you know the insight that translates into commercial benefit for us um, see, this, so, yeah, see, this we, is interesting you always hear the you know, are you talking to your customers? You need to be talking to your customers. And, you know, for some companies, that's great and it's easy and, you know, they can do that. And like you're pointing out, mm. once you know your audience, like you, you're able to know that they're, they're busy people. They might not necessarily want to, to even look at the financial part. And now you're asking them financial input, uh, which would you prefer A or B? And they don't even want to know it. So it, it's super important to understand that that's who you may be talking to. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I would say like the other, the other thing here that I often think about is um, if you're, if you're, you know, the, the other mantra you hear a lot is, you know, solve your own problems. Right. And I think that's 
definitely true and a good and reliable way to build a good company. Um, usually because you're your own customer, so you can iterate faster to get to product market fit. And probably if you are your own customer, you're going to be hanging out with people that are a similar persona to you. And so it's much easier to like, you know, test with other people. I think in our case, like, um, obviously I had trouble with credit coming to the UK cause I didn't have a credit file, but like, I haven't, you know, defaulted on a credit card personally. I'm, I'm lucky not to have done that. And so, you know, there's that extra sort of stretch required, um, to, to like, you know, build empathy. Um, and because it's not a specific use case that I felt. And so it's even more important. It's harder to do it uh, as well, but it's even yeah. more important to go out of your way to, to soak up what the, what, what it's like and what the problem is, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like there seems to be a massive problem there because like even I interviewed, um, the founder of Money's um a, a, a long time ago and and hit norris uh was the name and he was telling me that when he first came to the uk same sort of problem you know wasn't able to open up a bank account i also recently interviewed the two founders michelle and gerald from fintern and um, mm. michelle is is from china and when she came over to the uk exact same sort of problem and they're looking to to try and help when it comes to getting uh borrowing money um and now you you know, telling me about your experience as well. Give me some of the figures that are out there when it comes to to credit ratings, and because I've heard of some scary stats that like there's there's I, I don't know whether it's nineteen million or twenty million people in the UK um, have less than or could get their hands on less than five hundred pounds in an emergency mm. if they needed it. You you probably know these stats better than I do. Now don't take that one that I said is uh, that that's going off memory from a while ago. Um but you must have some some stats. A quick sponsor reminder. If you're looking to fund growth without having to give away equity, Uncap solved this problem. To find out more go to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN and to avail of a ten percent discount off your fees, use the code UKTN ten. That's UKTN one zero. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that that's, that actually sounds about right. Um, I would say the the other one that we cite a lot is that in the sort of credit invisible or like, uh, you know, hard to credit assess population in the UK is to the tune of, it depends on who you who you go to um, for the analytics, but analysis rather, but it, it's between 10 to 15 million people. Um, and when you think about, you know, the adult population of the UK, I don't know what that, what that is, maybe 50 million. 45, something like that. Um, that's a huge segment of the population. The other thing I would note is that, you know, that segment is growing, right? Um, I think when, when you consider things like consumer income is becoming more volatile, 2022, here we are with loads of inflation and, and um, kind of a difficult underlying economic tone. Um, you look at the chance that people are going to, well, we did see earlier this year, and I'm, I'm afraid I forgot the stat, but I think um, it's an all-time high right now of consumers using products like Buy Now, Pay Later to, you know, not just make retail um, clothing purchases, but any kind of like even household essential purchases. You're, you're looking at an economy that is going to have more and more people um, in depth. Uh, impairing their credit files and becoming more more and more difficult for mainstream lenders to lend to. So my bet would be that that segment's going to grow even further. Um, which so, so what, may- what are your thoughts? I'm curious to get your thoughts then on the the buy now pay later model. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that is something that is a recipe for disaster for anyone who is poor with credit? Uh, 
Okay, short answer, no. Um, I think there's a few things. Number one, um, buy now, pay later has actually been around for a really long time. Like retail financing, um, I can't remember the name of the, the brand, but um, going to a store, buying a sofa on, on 0% interest or even some APR credit is nothing nothing new. Um, it's really one of the actually biggest lenders in the UK started out that model and is like 30, 40 years old. So, so you know, that's nothing new. Um, I think what is new is, of course, like how accessible this is and how um, it's in now embedded in most e-commerce checkouts. Yeah. That's new. Um, but I would say that like what, what to me is, is requires more work is just the awareness um, to consumers. I think what concerns me is that uh, many, uh, some, some of these buy now pay later players remain unregulated, which means they don't have particular um, rules and regulations they need to follow around like marketing or consumer awareness of what the product is and what it entails uh, in terms of what it can do to their credit record. Uh, and also, I think because they're unregulated, they may not be checking um, the consumers for their actual affordability on using that credit. And those two things, uh, the lack of awareness on the impact it can have and also the lack of awareness on the lender side of what the consumer's financial situation is, those two things combined are a risk for sure. Um, we have to do better uh, yeah. on that to, to protect uh, consumers. But I do think the industry is going in the right direction. Um, so generally, I think, you know, if anything, it could use right, it would include more people into the system because it's using alternative data to underwrite um, these these loans. And it's also a very convenient way for when managed responsibly consumers to create more cash flow fluidity. Um, and I think the last thing I would say on that is that compared to, let's say, credit card APR, uh, it can be cheaper. And so when you look at it net net, uh, I would I would argue that it is it is a beneficial innovation. It's just that, of course, like anything new, we have to figure out um, and make sure that adequate protections are in place um, yeah. for the consumer. Yeah, sorry, a bit of a long answer, but yeah, I, I do think it's it's all about how we use it, uh, and in general, it's an innovation that is going in the right direction. And, and I do agree with you, and I think. Um, it's something that needs to be covered because like it's so readily and easily accessible that, you know, you might jump into it without reading the small print or actually understanding what you're getting yourself into. And it's one of those situations where it is free and there is no impact on you. And it, it's great because it does free up cash flow. But it's the when you miss that one payment or if you don't pay it off on time, that's when you're you're really hitting penalized. And I think a lot of people get caught out because they're they're shocked at how how badly they're penalized um, yeah. with all those things. I, I want to talk about uh, a little bit more about PAVE and the the way you were able to build the amount of users that you have on or that I have using the, the, the platform now. I think you told me uh, just before the podcast it was close to, to half a million. Um, like there are some pretty impressive numbers. How did you build the usership and the community to that size um because i know there's a lot of people that are listening to this now that are going through the same sort of struggle where they need to break that that 10,000 mark or they need to break the 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 100,000 mark you know when you now being on on half a million i'm sure there's a lot of things you've learned along the way things that worked things that didn't work and um, what do you think was the the main the main success to to getting to that yeah, um, not to not to sound not to repeat myself, but I do think like 
multiple things. I mean, being being customer centric and building a good product in in consumer is definitely key. Although I would argue that increasingly that's not enough. Uh, I'll get to that. Um, I think uh, to give you a concrete example, when when you are customer centric, you're interviewing customers, figuring out what what they need, and you know responding rapidly to that need. Um, it will naturally create growth inflection points for your business. So specifically, um, as mentioned, we started off doing you know stuff like tax returns for for uh, self-employed people, and then became more mass market and launched a credit builder because through that process we learned that that's what customers want wanted, and we launched that product in like 2019 end of um, as an MVP and. Honestly, at the time, I was skeptical. I was like, who's going to use this? <laughs> um, and then uh, we, we launched it. It was doing quite well. But then COVID happened. We did loads of interviews because you're we like, oh, you know, this is BS. We have to change our entire product roadmap. Oh, no. But turns out when we were doing those interviews, we learned something. And we learned that um, for the first time, because of, uh, you know, quantitative easing, furlough, other things, uh, a lot of our kind of customer base had uh, managed to free up cash flow. Um, they were at home, they weren't spending, they were cooking, you know, blah, blah, uh, weren't commuting um, and spending money on that. So for the first time, they were like, oh, I have enough kind of mental and financial bandwidth to think about longer term aspirational purchases like a mortgage. Um, and oh, what do I need for that? Well, I need a good credit record. And so are by chance, like, I mean, not by fully chance, but you know what I mean. The MVP yeah. for credit building coincided with that market inflection point, which um, initially I was dismayed by, aka COVID. Turned out, combined, they became a really powerful opportunity. So I would say, first and foremost, it's like listening to your customers and just always being ready um, to build what they need, depending on how the market reacts. And I think, again, we're going through a moment like that in 2022 with you know, inflation and everything that's going to create new opportunities. So there's always something there if you're listening. Um, and actually, I would say that that was the moment when we launched that product and got it out to market. And, and, and um, that, that created a huge growth spurt for us, like, you know, growth that I've just never seen. I mean, it was, it was really cool. So that's the first thing. And I think, um, I think the second thing that um, um, we do a lot of, and again, it sounds a bit cliche, but it is experimentation. Um, a good framework that uh, I've used is literally just to map out all of the channels that are available to your business. Uh, some are longer term channels like, you know, SEO, of course, um, and also affiliates, uh, whatever, but others are quite rapidly experimentable. And it's just about rapidly testing and not being scared to test stuff that even if you don't think it's going to work, just testing it very quickly in like week by weekly cadence sprints. Um, yeah. An example of the strategy working really well for us was um, in 20, uh, gosh, was it 2021? Yeah. So when TikTok first came to the UK or like properly started scaling here, I, again, I was quite skeptical. <laughs> See a pattern here. Um, anyway, but uh, I was a bit like, uh, is this going to work? It's probably for 16 year olds. No one's going to use it. Um, but we tried it because uh, we had a, an amazing um, uh, kind of team that were able to say, look, let's take a bet on this. Um, and they did. And my goodness, it exploded. We had like two months, three months of growth um, with incredible unit economics because it was from, a brand new channel. Yeah, it was yeah, it okay. was 
we've never seen as good as performance. I'm kind of giving giving TikTok free marketing here, but whatever. Um, the uh, they do give us credit, so you know, uh, tit for tat. Um, the the growth was incredible, and the unit economics were amazing. Now, of course, that petered out, right? As more and more fintechs, I think all the fintechs now are on TikTok, um, but uh, it certainly gave us a huge boost. Uh, for, was for, that was that creating your own content on TikTok, or was that going through affiliates? Um, that was specifically creating uh, performance marketing ads, uh, paid ads that we would boost. Uh, we okay. also tried influencers. Uh, that works as well, not as well. Uh, it's more expensive, but we, I think we categorize that more as like brand marketing. Um, and so for us, it was specifically uh, performance marketing, uh, bespoke content for that purpose that we would push through. And that worked really, really well. Um, yeah, because I, I always think uh, when I do meet other marketeers, when it comes to to trying new things and testing new things, I always seem to come up against the same problem with people trying to get their head around TikTok, you know, mm. because everyone's so used to seeing TikTok and it could be something like, I don't know, like a cat falling over for argument's sake. Mm. And then they're kind of going like, how do I create content for my mm. business on TikTok that when that's what they're relating TikTok to? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, it's not really a secret sauce or anything on our side. I, I do think, obviously, you have to have a good team, a creative team willing to take bets. Um, one of the things that we did, uh, uh, wow, it seems like a long time ago because of lockdown, but you know, in early 2021, when we were starting to do TikTok a bit more, we would do uh, growth team brainstorms. And like this was, you know, these were one of the, the the best moments, some of my best memories, because it was literally like pull all the stops out, just the wackiest ideas. Let's go. Everyone get creative. These are our personas. These are the themes that have worked in the past. Just get creative. And of course, like out of the 100 ideas you generate as a team, and by the way, it would be the full, not full company, whoever would want to attend, but not just multidisciplinary, I guess is the right word. Um, you know, we would all brainstorm together. Out of the 100 ideas, only five would go into production but then you'd get like a mega hitter and i remember one of our best performing ads was just like someone in our team talking about the app and it looked like it had been shot on i don't know a, a nokia right <laughs> really like low production quality but it works it worked incredibly well um and i think there was a magic moment uh, in tiktok where this kind of low quality clearly shot by uh, you know an amateur type uh uh video um when boosted with performance marketing worked really well because it felt yeah. super legit and then of course everyone caught on to that and now i think we're past that uh point in in the curve um and yeah i think brands need to get really creative and i think you know there's great examples like ryanair who do that um but um yeah so so that, that was our experience of it but yeah back to that point of like how to make growth work this was just an instance where we got in early we took a bet we tested it it worked um, and I think you just have to keep that approach because channels will come up, channels will die. Um, and I think, you know, iOS 14 is a great example of like channels getting killed a little bit. Um, and you just have to like, you can't really ever rest, I think, in consumer marketing for sure. You just always have to be innovating. With, with the number that you, you've grown to to date, um, at what stage did you see the real kind of like curve picking up on it i know you've tried the the things that have been super successful like the tiktok but did that jump you from like fifty thousand users to one hundred and fifty thousand euros users what was it that type of growth and and like i'm just trying to think like over the time like 
because you're at roughly say half a million users now um what was that at last year uh well so i mean it's a good question well at the start of last year we were probably uh, a fifth of that i would say right okay yeah so so you know there was a clear inflection point um yeah around the beginning of that year um and then prior to that it was a lot more like you know um incremental you know you do a batch of experiments you get hundreds thousands of users you kind of move on try the next thing but then what really worked was the combination of um the uh product working really well boosted by additional channels and then you kind of like really start to grow um yeah. so yeah that that's the kind of velocity that we saw um yeah is, is everything you do when it comes to marketing the brand um measurable because I know when I had yeah. Alex from from Chip on yeah. the uh, on the podcast for lots of the the online content that they're creating yeah. is super measurable. But when it came to TV ads and billboard ads, not so much. But he was able to see um, when they had started doing the likes of the TV ads and the and the billboard ads, the social media um, uh, return investment shot right up. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a great great point, and I think largely I would echo that uh, experience. Um, we did a we did our first out of home campaign in February, um, and did bus ads uh, and bus shelter ads as well, uh, and also radio. What you see is that you know con- uh, traffic increased slightly, um, conversion increased a lot, which was interesting. So, and but to be fair, I'm not sure if that my team would agree because that's what they predicted. Um, and again, I'm not an expert in this, so I kind of went by what they were saying, but, um, yeah, we certainly saw better, um, better conversion. Uh, and then, um, I, we haven't done the work just yet, but I imagine like, you know, brand recall trust, this kind of stuff, uh, would yeah. also be, uh, an added impact of that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to measure, but it is possible. Um, when you look at the external signals, I think the difficult stuff is like, properly scientifically trying to isolate it also you know when you're trying to keep growing you don't want to like have to put the pedal off performance marketing to just invest in ooh and then uh to to, you know create an isolated experiment that's really difficult trade-offs you have to make uh do you prioritize learning versus growing uh was one thing i remember thinking um but yeah you, you can measure it i would say though um what has got a lot harder at least in our experience to measure is um, performance marketing on on the major platforms like Snapchat, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, TikTok is since the advent of iOS 14, which I, you know, it's kind of old news now, but yeah. um, certainly the granularity of data, the reliability of data is is nowhere near what it, what it was um, at the start of 2021. You, you've also had some, some funding to date. You've had a, a pre-seed round of, of a million. You've had a seed round of, of 7 million. And I see you've also had some pretty impressive investors um, with backgrounds in N26, Monzo, and Indeed. Um, was was that a particular uh, set of people that you went after when looking for funding, or did they just happen to be the ones that ended up in, investing in, in Pave in the end? Yeah, it's weird. I, I don't know if this is a, a, atypical, but um, both sets of investors that we ended up going with um, turned out to be the ones that were kind of uh, outbound, not marketing, but like contacting us. Um, 
and I think you know maybe it is not that surprising, but it ca- it came as a result of I was fundraising at the time for both um, a seed pre seed. Uh, we called it a Series A at, at the time, but I think it's now in size closer to a seed. Um, but but uh, that's neither here nor there. I the, the main point being like I was raising, but then I got a I think I got a call for the first one um, from one of the investors, and they were like, "Let's chat, let's meet for dinner," and then they did this amazingly human due diligence uh, on us. And I, I still recall it to be such a positive experience. It was amazing. Uh, but anyway, and then that kind of resulted in the first round. And then the second round as well, it was just like this um, person that, uh, well, the investor reached out to me, I think it was email or LinkedIn. I was raising at the time, but I was, you know, being a bit coy <laughs> about it. And then that converted into um, our investment. So what was, I think, unique about our experience there was that funnily, the ones that I was targeting didn't end up being the ones that um, we, we ended up uh, working with. Um, but yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, the, that's the thing I can say to our, to our experience, at least. It, it normally always ends up that way, isn't it? Like the ones you really want sometimes don't end up being the ones that, that come on board. And then it normally happens that the ones that do come on board, everything happens for a reason, you know, and it ends up being the right choice for you going forward i'd love to know like was there any was there any real gold golden bits of nuggets that uh you know you that you got from the advice from some of these people because i said like monzo indeed especially indeed um and and n26 as well like it's some pretty impressive companies some pretty pretty impressive backgrounds i should say that they have yeah i I mean you i think you talked to both investors and and uh, operators um who have turned investors um, the thing that typically impresses me the most is the patience. I would say, um, when you've been a founder and you're and you're working in the trenches and like you know you're up to your neck and 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 just shit you need to wade through and like difficult situations. Um, yeah, the last thing you sometimes want to feel is like extreme pressure from a board. Let's say. And I found that, you know, when you're chatting to the best investors, they first of all have immense amounts of empathy and they'll be like, look, I get it. It's tough. Um, here's what I did. Uh, and they will very subtly reassure you and steer you in the right direction. And I think that just takes experience that I respect a ton. Um, there's no kind of golden nugget of advice I can give, but I, I always am impressed the most in those circumstances when you just feel, you know, their money is at stake here. Right. And yeah. Uh, they regardless put that aside and they say like, look, I think what you need is empathy and encouragement more than anything. You know, I don't have plans to become an investor anytime soon, but um, I would say that if I were one, I'd be looking out for that. I think the other, um, again, not advice, but trait that I really value is um, when they can call a spade a spade. Um, So some of the most important Decisions that we've made as a business have been definitely shepherded along by an investor telling me like, look, this is what I think you should be doing, or, um, you know, this is a tough call that you're avoiding or whatever. Um, and then just calling you out on that. And I know those two, what I just said sounds a little contradictory, but I think that's exactly it. The best investors are the one that like know when to give you a bit of space, um, and kindness and be human. But then when it really matters, their words count even more if they tell you like you're not delivering this or you need to think about that. And so I think, yeah, those are kind of the general principles that I I would love to, if I were ever to invest, I would be looking to operate by. 
you're mainly operating in the UK. Do you have plans to to go further afield? Yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, uh, it's it's an interesting point for us because um, I think again, going back to that, you know, listening to your customers bit, um, this year presents a lot of interesting opportunities for fintech. Um, I think we're seeing record levels of financing still continue into Q1 this year, uh, despite some kind of skepticism and bearish signs in the overall macro market. So I think there's still funding. Uh, I also think, though, that on the consumer experience side, uh, people are facing income shocks, like really tough situations that they're going to have to navigate, and those create new opportunities. So actually, international isn't the immediate priority for us, although it is something we're thinking about. We do have other um, ideas that I can hint at, but I can't be too specific on, unfortunately, with uh, basically using our kind of credit analytics technology and credit health building technology um, in ways that isn't just for consumers uh, is is an area we're investing a lot of time and money in because we're um, extremely confident in our capabilities to um, having worked with so many consumers, uh, assess them better uh, and help build a more inclusive financial system um, through other means, shall we say. <laughs> as soon as I can be more open about it, I'll, I'll let you know. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and I've really enjoyed this, this conversation and I'm sure we could chat all day, but I don't know if our viewers will allow us, our listeners will allow us. Um, before we go, I do have one other question for you. And this is one that I ask all of my guests that come on the show. And this is, what book have you read that has had the most impact on either you as an entrepreneur or on your company, Pave? It actually, it's funny. I was just chatting about this book yesterday with one of my um, team. Um, and it's a left field one. It's not like, you know, the five dysfunctions of team or hard thing about hard things. I, I'm going to deliberately go a bit left field here and go for uh, fiction. Um, although it's kind of fiction, kind of not. It's a book by uh, John Steinbeck called um, Cannery Row. Um, and it's uh, a fiction about uh, a fishing village in uh, in California. And in there, there's a character uh, called Doc, who is a marine biologist and is actually based on a real person called Ed Ricketts. And um, Steinbeck's de depiction of his charisma and leadership qualities is something that has influenced me uh, heavily as an individual. And I often go back to that book and read it and think about what does it mean to be a real leader of people? Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, my kind of left field uh, one. But genuinely, it's the, it's the book that has influenced me the most. Thank you for listening. Before you go, could you please take a moment to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast? I'd really appreciate the support. And remember, our sponsor, Uncapped, offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales. No dilution or loss of control. Apply online. Decision within 24 hours. Make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue. Head to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN to find out more. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10, that's UKTN10.